the quantum mechanics. Yes, we're the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for believers, doubters, and everyone in between. And I've I'm working away on a book at the moment, Ben. And uh, I'm so busy at the moment that I'm just reading it whenever I get a chance in my downtime, which is very little at the moment. Um, but it's a fascinating book. I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks we'll do an episode on it. But I've had some amazingly weird jots and coincidences while I've been reading about it, which I'm not going to go into now, but I will save for the episode. But some really kind of hairs on the back of your neck ones, which it's a bit of a teaser and you're going to have to wait. But yeah, it's been a brilliant book I'm reading. Hopefully in a couple of weeks I can talk about it and then tell you what these jots and coincidences are. But some of them are quite bizarre. When you start looking at the paranormal, it starts looking back at you, is a phrase that I hear so often. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's Yeah, it's slightly... It's, it, it slightly freaked me out when... Because it was one of... It, I, again, I'm not going into it, but it was one of those things where it was only halfway through it that I realised what the coincidence was and it was like oh that is so weird so <laughs> i'll save it a couple of weeks we'll look back at the paranormal looking back at me looking back at it <laughs> <laughs> there's looking looking back at you looking back at it isn't that an alan partridge thing anyway anyway yeah, it, was. it was i hope that's clear to everyone <laughs> it's it's incredibly clear <laughs> Um, okay, so I've been looking at some stuff this week. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm just moving my phone because I could hear that it was uh, making a strange noise on my microphone. So, yeah, I've been looking at some stuff th- this week. And it, it's sort of inspired by the last episode because quite often we get onto the topic of UFOs and alien craft and talk about how they slightly post-date the current technological era, don't we? We say, like, you know, so we spoke about airships um, that were around ahead of airships, and there are descriptions of uh, sort of steampunk-style interiors on craft that are reported by abductees. And triangular craft, and then we had, I mean, I guess... The stealth bomber. Yeah, I guess a sceptic would say, oh, it's people testing out this secret technology before it becomes mainstream. But it, it is, if you take it from the other perspective, it is quite weird that it's just a little bit ahead of the curve. It's fantastical, but not completely. Yeah, that's right. And because it's just slightly ahead of the curve, you can give it those explanations of, well, maybe it is secret you know, secret military tech testing or even secret private tech going through some kind of sea trials or something like that. And then I remembered that there are a number of paintings which supposedly depict UFOs. Mm. And that made me think, I wonder what the earliest encounter stories really are, because I'd never looked into it. And so that's what this episode is about. But just before we go into it, if you aren't familiar, and I guess you would be familiar with the paintings if you've ever watched Ancient Aliens, because these things are well covered. Are you kind of referring to those, those, I know there's those kind of slightly biblical paintings, aren't they? Or supposed to represent biblical scenes that have weird Yeah, that's exactly craft, right. That yeah. kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in those early paintings, sort of, I think three of the most iconic are, there's one called the Madonna with St. Giovanni, 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 the Madonna with St. Giovannino. Let's call and, it the Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I can't help slipping into, uh, hello, hello, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... This I think this is probably the most famous one. Um, just Google it while you're listening to us. It shows an airborne craft and it's just kind of behind the Madonna's shoulder and it really, for all the world, looks like some kind of mechanical craft. And to add to that, there's a man 
in the background who's looking at the UFO and he's got a dog barking at it, which I think is kind of remarkable. Yeah. Uh, there's another one called Israel Put Your Hope in the Lord, which is from the 1600s. And the artist is not known, but the caption below it reads, um, <laughs> well, I'm not going to do the German, but it translates into Israel, put your hope in the Lord. And the painting depicts a huge UFO hovering above a burning church. Wow. And if if you Google it, I mean, it really is like a giant UFO. And it isn't, you can't confuse it with a cloud or anything like that. It's literally like a... Uh, a Hollywood style UFO. Wow. And then there's one from 1710 called The Baptism of Christ. And this currently resides in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. And it was painted by a Dutch artist. And he had, um, I'm not sure if you'd say affiliation, but he uh, enjoyed the works of Rembrandt. And that is kind of relevant because the, the Rembrandt is sort of supposed to have a little bit of secret knowledge. Like we won't go into that now, but Rembrandt is supposed to, uh, you know, almost have some kind of secret society knowledge. And that means that people kind of interpret this painting in a particular way. So this uh, image shows four columns of light being emitted from a disc-like object onto the baptism of christ that is happening below and people sort of say well this painting represents the fact that um uh, the artist knew that there was some sort of secret thing going on um back then and maybe jesus was an alien you know crazy stuff like that but i i would say of all the all the paintings to look at those three are really kind of the ones um, quite so yeah they're surprisingly obvious in the craft that they're depicting well we will um as people know we often do a photo album on facebook that accompanies our episodes so we will put those images on uh, on our facebook album so if you go to at tqm podcast hopefully you can have a look and see them there yourself well they are they are staggering but I thought what I'd do is look at some of the, or at least read some of the accounts from people even earlier than those paintings who describe what you can only really interpret as UFO encounters. Now, a lot of these things have Roman names, so you're going to have to give me a pass on these. Oh, have you up the, have you up the level of our pronunciation? <laughs> well, the first one is about some phantom ships from a historian called Titus Livius Pativinus. I did it. Pativinus. I just want to go, your desire. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a historian of the ancient world and he wrote an epic, epic chronicle of Rome. And one of the things that he mentions is something that he uh, describes as being the many prodigies gleaming in the sky. And this is an account from 214 BC. And these many prodigies, he then goes on to describe as phantom ships. Now, nobody really knows what it was that he was describing. But later on in that passage, he talks about... Um, at a place called Arpi, which is in uh, current Armenia, round shields being seen in the sky in 216 BC and in 212 BC at Riat, a huge stone was seen flying about. So he obviously saw quite a lot of weird stuff in the sky. With, and, and that description of, uh, maybe maybe it's kind of, developed over translation over the years but you know a ship in the sky at that at that point in history would have just been mind-blowing wouldn't it yeah 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 well i also like the fact that he just says but well, it's a huge stone flying around um because i guess there's no there's no frame of reference yeah so 
Yeah, that's kind of interesting. But I also like the reason I find these accounts so fascinating is that people just kind of go, oh, they didn't know what they were talking about. But at the same time as saying, oh, we didn't, they didn't know what they were talking about, we take their accounts of, you know, the political machinations of the time and actual battles between humans, we take them as historical fact. So I don't think you can have one without the other. Now, it's possible that you can put these other things down to unknown phenomena and no doubt a lot of people would say oh well he saw a shooting star or a meteorite or something or a like weird that. cloud format or rare uh, cloud formation or yeah, something. yeah but i think that imparts a level of almost um sort of childlike abilities in the author i don't think you would see i don't i don't think this person would see an unusual cloud and go well that's just a huge stone Mm. and it goes on it goes on so there's another uh, roman historian and essayist essayist plutarch and he was recounting the happenings at a battle in 74 bc and it was between a roman army and uh, this is this is where I'm going to have to go very slowly. The forces of King Mithridates the sixth of Pontus, the sixth. He was better, wasn't he? The fifth. Yeah, yeah. Everyone hated yeah. the fifth. No, we we don't even talk about. The we fifth. don't. We don't even talk about the fifth. He wrote how, with no apparent change of weather, the sky burst asunder and a huge flame-like body was seen to fall between two armies. In shape, it was most like a wine jar and in colour like molten silver. And he goes on to say thousands of onlookers, including King Mithridates, the sixth himself, confirmed the truth of the story. So this is, you know, a report on what is a human battle. And then there is something peculiar that comes out of the sky. And what that's making me think about... um you know, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast and asked whoever we've had as a guest on about it who's got connections, is this connection between UFO sightings and military. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Even, even way back then in the middle of a battle, you know, not only a UFO sighting at such, if that's what it was, but almost coming down in the middle of the battle it's that's just incredible yes yes completely yeah and and it sort of goes alongside that when we were talking about the alien interest in nuclear missile bases you wonder you know do these accounts mean that it went further they're sort of observing the evolving behaviors of these ants in their little ant farm i just got this vision of them saying Oh, look at those catapults. Bless. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it is weird. Um, There's there's another person who is sort of contemporary to those by, well, I say contemporary, by like, you know, there's 300 years apart. Uh, He's called Titus Flavius Josephus. That's interesting, isn't it? Flavius. It's Flavius. kind of, yeah, like Flavor oh, Flav. Yeah, yeah, it's a great name, Flavius. It, it, it's probably Flavor Flav's name if you, in Latin. Yeah, <laughs> Titus Flavius. <laughs> Titus Flavius Flavius. He described a miraculous phenomena defying belief in the first century AD. He wrote that what I'm about to relate would, I imagine, have been deemed a fable were it not for the narratives of eyewitnesses. He went on to describe chariots and armed battalions hurtling through the clouds and encompassing the cities. So this is something that we've seen and there's kind of there's a famous wood carving about this, almost describing an airborne battle between craft that you know is so huge that it isn't just a single sighting there's kind of a lot going on there and that makes sense that description doesn't it it's reminded me of you know nigel watson when we interviewed him talking about the airships being almost a generic term for something flying in the sky 
you would, wouldn't you? Chariots and chariots of the gods and all that kind of stuff. That language would make sense if you saw something that was akin to a UFO back in those times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you would, you would. And and then you start getting these accounts of what I can describe as alien artefacts. So have you come across angel hair? Have you come across that term? I, I, that sounds really familiar, but I can't... I, I can't remember to what, but it, that is sparking something in me. So not as in the pasta, but yeah. it, it is it is reported even in modern uh, UFO sightings that one of the things that UFOs leave behind is this peculiar substance which sort of resembles fibres and slowly disappears. And it's been speculated that it is a side effect of the propulsion system of the craft and i thought that was a modern thing because it's almost sci-fi in yeah, yeah. In, in in its thing but no i found this description from uh, 196 ad when uh, there's an historian cassius dio thank god he had an easy name <laughs> recounted how a fine rain resembling silver descended from a clear sky upon the forum of Aug- Augustus, Augustus, Augustus. I'm going to say Augustus. He actually collected some of the bizarre material and used it to plate some bronze coins. He reported that they retained the same appearance for three days, but by the fourth day, all the substance rubbed on them had disappeared. So that is exactly what we see in modern day. You can capture it, you can put it in a jar, but after a certain period of time, it disappears strangely and conveniently before anyone can analyze it it's also i know it's different but it's also i had an image of roswell as well with the you know the metallic kind of flexible material that they found there i know it didn't evaporate but it was fascinating that isn't it that they find material that they're not familiar with and in this case actually did something with it it obviously yes. evaporated over time but that is really fascinating I do find it sort of peculiar that the first thing, yeah, what's this? I don't know. Make those coins shiny, won't it? Yeah, fine. <laughs> let's do that with it then. Yeah. Like, hope we get more. Um, but the the famous woodcut that I was um, talking about comes from something called the Nuremberg Spectacle, and um, as you can probably imagine, this happened over the sky in Nuremberg in April fifteen sixty one. And there's a contemporary account which describes how at daybreak the heavens filled with garishly vivid objects from blood-red semicircular arcs to dark balls of black ferrous colour which started rushing back and forth and fighting amongst themselves. Eventually they came onto the earth and wasted away with immense smoke. Many citizens testified to seeing this UFO battle and it was commemorated in a woodcut engraving. Now, loads and loads of people. This is, we are not the first people to talk about this by any means. And lots of people have tried to explain this away by it being some kind of abnormal atmospheric phenomena. And, you know, it's possible, it's really possible it is, but again, it sounds so very similar to the the fighting of crafts encompassing many cities. There seems to be a thing, you know, a theme. A theme of happening it. Well, I, here. I, I, yeah. I was thinking with the other example, because that, that's fascinating as well. And obviously something in modern day, in quotation marks, UFO mythology, you don't get that. <laughs> You don't get kind of battles or aggression, you know, unless it's at like earthbound military engaging them. But this is, they're saying they're fighting amongst themselves or between two sets of species in a way or alien craft. The other one that you mentioned where they talked about a battle in the sky, is that around the same time? Um, the other battle in the sky no that is about 300 years earlier okay all right that it's it's fascinating though that the mythology of that around that time does involve conflict and battle that we don't we don't have that narrative now yeah yeah well it's almost like the 
if you put it in the context of the observer there's there's territorial battles going on between you know different earthly warring factions and yeah. these are interpretations of them yeah. Yeah. but it's strange that in that Nuremberg one that there is you know uh, this idea that there is infighting and then they disappear into a huge amount of smoke on the earth i think that's remarkable i mean the the most sort of um rational explanation comes from being it's a meteor shower which yeah. it sort of well, makes it's the sense. back and forth that it's makes the back and think. forth yeah 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 because certainly meteors don't do that <laughs> no no um and then um going back slightly in time there's this really fascinating one um there's a british folklorist called richard mercer dawson and he speaks about how there is a wit there are witnesses to a flying ship that got its anchor lodged in a church in england in 1211 and there's a couple of authors valet and orbeck and they promoted this sighting as an extraterrestrial event in the book that they published called Wonders in the Sky. And although they noted that the story comes from multiple tellings, they claim that um, the, uh, uh, the, the historian was like merely just a collector of stories, as was the original first-hand account from this guy called Gervais of Tilbury. And the story goes that as people were exiting a church in Bristol, a ship in the sky got its anchor caught in a pile of stones as its cable reached upwards into the clouds. And it goes on to say, voices were then heard above the clouds, apparently in clamorous debate, and a sailor came down the cable. As soon as he touched the ground, the crowd gathered around him, and he died like a man drowned at sea, suffocating by our damp, deep, thick atmosphere. The cable was cut an hour later and the ship sailed away, leaving the anchor behind, which was reportedly made into ornaments and a fastening for the church door. Some accounts even claim that villagers stoned the man to death rather than him dying from atmospheric suffocation. Now, that all sounds... That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really good, doesn't it? Except that that story also is attributed to a number of other churches in Kent and Bristol and Somerset. Right. All um, dating to 12, uh, 1211 and variously having embellishments around them like it was in the middle of a Sunday Mass or right. the local bishop stepping in to stop people capturing the sailor so that he could swim back up to the ship and cut the rope and sail away and it seems apocryphal it seems like what we've got here is sort of the seeds of a folk tale or yeah. folklore which hasn't really caught but did spread if, enough if it's i know i know the timings don't work and i'm not saying it is but it 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 reminded me, it's kind of something you might read in an Edgar Allan Poe short story. Oh, 100%, yeah. yeah. Because it's, uh, got, it's got the religious connotations yeah. alongside these peculiar infractors. Yeah. And, and I think that's why it's designed to capture the imagination. And the fact that parts of the anchor are then turned into ornaments for the church, Yeah, you would think that, that there would be evidence of that but there is none i've checked into it the there is no church which claims to have these alien or even super terrestrial artifacts in in their keep so unless unless the alien captain of the ship was particularly bad Oh, God, Orgo's got stuck on another bloody church spire. <laughs> <laughs> Send another sailor down, save that anchor now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is remarkable that, again, what we spoke about earlier about um, these craft resembling something slightly ahead 
of the time, the fact that anything extraterrestrial would be weighing an anchor is yeah. is weird. And I suppose you can sort of go to, well, maybe this is Sedona Aero Club kind of thing, like privateers yeah. trying out peculiar flying ships that aren't in the public knowledge. But to me, that feels, it feels too folklory. It feels yeah. like it's it's just a tale. And the fact that it is, you know, so old, over 800 years old, I I I don't really put too much stay in it. It's if it is great, if it is fiction, it's a it's a great bit of fiction though. For the it time. is a great bit of fiction. It yeah, is. it's kind of like I said, Edgar Allan Poe or H.G. Wells. It's kind of got that vibe to it, I think. Yeah, yeah, or, or yeah, yeah. But when when you look for alien ship encounters, you start looking for encounters of the third kind. People who are actually saying in their accounts that they are encountering something that is a non-terrestrial being. And quite often, because we're so, I think, um, we're so used to looking at 20th century accounts of alien abductions, if you do a Google search or if you are into the topic, you probably think that Betty and Barney Hill are the first recorded abductees. And and if they were, you'd start thinking, well, you know, they did they they recounted that story at the time of sci-fi and comic books and what they are doing is actually recounting a medical incident. You could you could be forgiven for saying that. But actually in the 20th century they weren't the first recorded abductees. We're going to go earlier, but I just wanted to point this out that in fact the very first sort of publicly uh recounted abduction tale takes place in Brazil in 1957 and it's the Antonio Villas Boas incident which you may have come across mm -hmm. but in a nutshell Boas claimed that he was working on his farm when a dish-shaped UFO landed and the alien crew dragged him inside and forced him to have intercourse with an alien woman although Boas's story is older the uh, the account that I'm um, rec uh, reading from now, the author says, is less frequently cited and the events in it described are less common to abduction narratives than those of the Hills. For example, they go on to say it's extremely rare for abductees to report being forced to have intercourse with alien women. Most abduction narratives do not draw such an explicit connection between alien abduction and sexuality. Nevertheless, both these scenarios share a mutual concern with the manipulation and violation of the body, and whether it is explicit or not, the form of this violate the form of this violation is clearly sexual. So, what the author there is saying is, like, although um, Villas was forced to have sort of biological penetrative sex, other people often report having ovum eggs and sperm removed and, that is and, and common probes and all that, that and anal of, probes yes you know yeah because you're right it's always framed in almost a medical scientific explorationary way if you can phrase it like that that's rather right than, rather than yeah a a forced uh sexual assault or encounter whatever you want to call it yeah yeah but before I go on to what I have found um, is the earliest alien reduction that I can find on record from 1645, I just want to point out that anybody listening to this who says, yeah, but the Villas-Boas incident has been disproved, yes, I'm aware of all of that. There is, um, uh, and I think Nick Redfern has spoken on this, the... Uh, the eyewitness account from Boas speaks about a noise that he describes as being similar to a helicopter and various other things which make it sound like what 
UFO skeptics say was a test of psychedelic drugs by the US military to see whether they could change somebody's perception in uh when when they thought they were being abducted by aliens and the encounter he is claiming to have the sexual encounter it is claimed that she was a prostitute who had her hair dyed red and was made to you know appear otherworldly so there is all of that side to it which i'm aware of i'm not discounting all i'm saying is that that encounter predates the barney and betty hill encounter but this one you can't explain through the testing of drugs and it concerns Anne Jeffries, who was a Cornish teenager who was found unconscious. And it goes, as I say, 1645. When she was revived, she said she had been assaulted by little men. She had been unable to move as they took her up to their castle in the air where they molested her and sent her home. She referred to these men as fairies and they continued to assault her regularly for a year until she was arrested for witchcraft. Jeffrey's account of little men and floating castles is identical to the accounts given by abductees of small, thin aliens and flying saucers, and the paralysis, molestation and recurring visitations are all common features in the abduction experience. So I'm taking this from a psychological analysis paper published in 2011, where they're trying to separate the sleep paralysis theory with um ancient ideas around incubus and succubus which we've spoken about before fairies which we've connected fairies exactly this is this is you say 1645 right yes because what's fascinating about that is i buy that that is a possibility but it's the the kind of ship in the air aspect to it because there is no basis for that at that point in time, is there? That there's nothing that, as far as I know, that connects that to fairy law or the incubus or succubus. There's nothing that goes, yeah, they'll take you up to their ship in the sky unless I'm missing something. No, no, that's that's absolutely right. I think the thing that possibly connects it is the going into the fairy underworld where you have an underground city of you know lights and there's a party and there's food and all of that sort of thing that's the similarity there but it it isn't it it, in in fairy folklore that isn't in the sky and so this sounds like a very early account of what we would now recognize as being an abduction story yeah yeah well, and the repeated abduction, which I think is fascinating as well. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think wow. so too. Wow, that's amazing. And and then you start thinking a little bit wider. And again, this has been covered in um, Ancient Aliens. And um, there's a brilliant book for anyone that is interested in this topic by a guy called Robert Temple called The Serious Mystery. And this is possibly the best evidence of an alien encounter which goes beyond an abduction scenario. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Dogon tribe and their knowledge. No. So the Dogon tribe have an incredibly advanced and accurate knowledge of astronomy and mathematics, which modern investigators and anthropologists believe they could not have developed by themselves now this is potentially white western arrogance i i absolutely accept that it could be but if i go on to describe if you're not familiar with this case nobody knows quite where the dogon tribe originated There are scientists who have speculated that they were of Egyptian descent and their traditions and folk ceremonies are aligned with the movements of an invisible and yet unknown star, Sirius B, I say as yet unknown, when we first started studying this tribe. 
Sirius B, which they knew to travel around Sirius A every 50 years in an elliptical manner, something which was completely unknown to Western astronomers at the time. Sirius A is a bright star which can be seen in the Western sky with the naked eye, but not Sirius B, which is its invisible companion. The Dogon people knew that Sirius B was very small but very dense, yet its existence was proven only in 1970 when it was photographed for the very first time by Western astronomers. The Dogon tribe knew about the existence of this invisible star for thousands of years. They also knew that Saturn has four moons and that it has rings, and although these cannot be seen, they knew that they were there even without the knowledge of powerful telescopes. So when you start interrogating this story, there are obviously, again, scientists and people studying the tribe who go in and speak to the elders. And they say, according to them, uh, and this was related, to, uh, a story related to a French scientist in 1939, they say their knowledge of the sky was given to them by creatures who descended to Earth thousands of years ago from Sirius B. They call these creatures the, uh, the Nomos, and they were amphibious. And so this, you get this very peculiar backstory to this knowledge directly delivered by the elders. And this... So can I stop you a second? Just yeah, so yeah, you're, yeah. Your, um, the facts that you just gave about uh, Sirius, about uh, the rings of Saturn and moons and stuff, were they told to these people, like in, you're saying in the 1930s? Were they, yes. Uh, so, so it's not just folklore that they knew about this. They communicated that to people outside of the tribe Oh, they Before did. Before some of these things were discovered. They did, they did. Wow. And, uh, and if if you read The Serious Mystery, which is it's quite a thick tome and it does take some getting through, but there is a coming-of-age ceremony within the Dogon tribe. And one of the things that is taught to the boys as they come of age by the elders are some symbols and those symbols represent the orbit of Sirius B around Sirius A. And it is a diagram of Sirius B, a diagram of Sirius A, and then some, well, we would call them numbers, but they are um, they're markings which depict the mathematical trajectory of Sirius B. And, and when again questioned how do you know that they put it down to these people who came down from the sky so this is a very 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 early in sort of encounter of the third perhaps even fourth kind that cannot be readily explained except unless you put on the lens of well perhaps they did have advanced ancestors who were completely terrestrial, who maybe invented telescopes, who maybe had a different way of looking at the world and passed that down and then it got lost in time and the only way to explain that knowledge was to say, oh, these people were so great, they came down from the stars. So they they would be a an ancient advanced civilization that died out and in some way the this tribe are are somehow related to them they're, or yeah, some of the knowledge still remained that's right they're they're almost parroting the knowledge and and one really out there idea that i read about when i was investigating this was that perhaps their ancestors had much better eyes than us and we are looking at things, if you'll pardon the pun, through the aspect of our own visual abilities. Perhaps their ancestors, because they were more closely in time related to a hunting species of Homo erectus, they had better eyes and therefore they were able to see these things in the sky. But I think that is quite a leap because 
if we weren't able to discover this until 1970, you'd have to have astonishing eyes to be able to see that. I mean, I know know there's less less kind of light pollution back then, but that's ridiculous. It is ridiculous, (laughs) isn't it? It is. But it does, it is interesting that they don't have, the tribe doesn't have a known origin and there are quite a lot of theories around pre uh i say prehistoric but pre-egyptian civilization as we know it whether there was an advanced civilization around then because you know we we can it's the it's the subjects of countless episodes of ancient aliens but you know who was it that got them to build the sphinx or you know why were they compelled to build the sphinx when the sphinx was obviously built during a time when there was a lot of water and swampland in that area rather than desert and how did they get the rudimentary knowledge of electricity which they clearly did have because of the batteries that are found you know so it, I'm not saying uh, what's that? What's that guy who uh, is on Asia? Is I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. I'm not saying it is, <laughs> but this could be a very super early example of an encounter of the third kind. But I suppose the the when I go back to my original point is that all of these encounters and these ships they don't fit in with that sort of idea of oh there is something just around the corner and what we're experiencing is is this so when we look at those uh images that have been released by the u.s military that date back to 2012 2014 of these huge pyramid shaped craft that are being photographed by advanced targeting systems on these ships you you know most people in the media will say, well, it's probably one of ours or probably one of theirs mm. because it's a much easier explanation and it fits the bill. You could sort of say, well, a Tic Tac, yeah, maybe we've got that technology. Maybe we've been testing it. Sure, maybe we've had it for 10 years. Maybe we're testing it with our own forces. Yeah, of course that's completely possible. But you can't fit that into a narrative of that has always been the case. Because when you start going back these hundreds and in some cases thousands of years, there are people reporting things which are, you know, uncomfortably similar. And yet there is no chance of there being a terrestrial origin for these things. So I just think if we bear these things in mind, it helps us put into context those current arguments that are being given yeah which i t- i totally and i slightly buy into those arguments at times of i've sat there and thought you know the nimitz the the tiktok was kind of yeah well you wouldn't want to show your hand if you had that technology unless you needed to right because you know everyone else would try and jump on the bandwagon and try and replicate it but i think you're right these examples are fascinating. I think the Dogon tribe especially because, you know, you as we've said with some of the others, it could be somebody who has just got a brilliant imagination and a brilliant eye for writing science fiction even back then. But yeah, to have that knowledge of star systems, serious you know the stuff you said about saturn and the moons and the rings it's just like that is so out there (laughs) it's really hard to kind of put that into the box of yeah yeah no it's just some secret technology that people at the time didn't understand it's so out there that you go wow Mm, mm. and one of the explanations for um the, the nomos people being described as amphibious is that they're wearing some kind of protective suit which is metallic and the only metallic thing that people would have seen at that time would be fish Mm. so there there is um you know there's a jump of logic made um and also you know potentially if they were alien beings 
and their craft can do what we see them being able to do today, assuming they are extra extraterrestrial craft, which is go out of water, underwater, without any seeming impediment of resistance, then you might describe them as being amphibious. So there's that element to it as well. Mm. Yep. So all of that got me thinking, well, I wonder if we can apply the same logic to ghosts because we've often you know we've put this to to ruth and we've discussed it ourselves a hundred times you know why don't we see ghosts of people pre-victorian times why don't we see ghosts of dinosaurs why don't we see ghosts of cavemen and i thought oh i wonder what the earliest encounter with a ghost that's actually recorded is and I was pleasantly surprised that it's um, 1500 BCE. Wow. And it's a clay tablet that apparently is a guide to exercising a ghost. And it's currently held in the British Museum. And when and, you say exercising, you mean getting rid of rather than taking it for a jog? No, no, taking <laughs> it for a jog. Yeah, yeah, get, getting rid of it. <laughs> uh, there's... Um, there's an author called Irving Finkel, great name. Yeah. Uh, he's a curator in the London Museum's Middle Eastern Department, and he also wrote a book called The First Ghosts, Most Ancient of Legacies. And he says the image on the tablet is only visible when viewed from above under a light. And the museum got this artefact in the 19th century, and it's never been exhibited but apparently, according to him, it holds carefully detailed instructions on getting rid of pesky ghosts. The directions call for the exorcist to make figurines of a man and a woman, prepare two vessels of beer, and at sunrise speak ritual words calling on the Mesopotamian god Shamash, who was responsible for bringing ghosts to the underworld. That sounds like me and you on a ghost hunt, pretty much. Well, it, it also sounds like something out of Ghostbusters, doesn't yeah. it? Finkel says that the idea was to transfer the ghost into one or other of the figurines, and the text's final line urges readers to not look behind you. Wow. Uh, I know. <laughs> that, is that the origins of Don't Look Behind You? That's incredible. Well, possibly, possibly, wow. but... But that that idea of of don't don't look back, yeah, it it, wow. it existed like three and a half thousand years ago, but yeah, apparently this is the the oldest evidence that we have for, well, you can frame it whichever way you like, either a belief in unseen entities, or the 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 knowledge of unseen entities. It would have been quite hard to get the tablet as well back then. It's like it's not as if you can print it and distribute it <laughs> or go online. So there's probably, you know, I wonder how many times it was actually used or I guess people spread it by word of mouth once the tablet was created. Yes. Oh, it's, it, it's, well, that is the start of a horror film right there, isn't it? It is, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I was thinking, oh, I should write something about that. <laughs> But but it, obviously, if that is 1500 BC and that is the exorcism element of it, then obviously the idea of it goes way before then because otherwise why would you bother yeah. cr creating a tablet? You know, why would you go to the bother of creating a tablet to get rid of these things if those things weren't there? So, again, I think that this helps us understand that the argument of looking at things through a modern lens is affecting our knowledge of what it is that we are perceiving is probably misguided. And, and I think it directly counters people like Professor Chris French, who says, you know, he claims that a lot of um, ghost manifestation reporting is based upon an interpretation of something that isn't that but is layered with popular culture or at least ideas that are familiar with people in 2022 and and I, I don't think that's right and what you could do is say well these this tablet relates to an earlier 
religious belief and it obviously does because it talks about uh, a uh, a god from mesopotamian Mesopotamia, yeah, um, from Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia. You were right first time. I was right first time. But yes, sure, but where do those ideas come from? You don't just, you you know, if if you're, again, pardon the pun, you don't just manifest those ideas. They come from somewhere. And the idea that there is a need to, to tell people how to tame these spirits, if the word spirits to be tamed why Mm. on earth would you go to that bother yeah yeah well it's quite specific isn't it as well it's hard it's not it's not part of you could you could kind of see oh there was a theme in a book or a written piece of work it's on a tablet that's that was its purpose that's amazing that was its 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 very purpose yes so i think you know as we talk about like you know the the whole idea of our podcast is to sort of look at these things with a an unjudgmental view i think this just helps us have perhaps a slightly different lens on what it is that people are saying reporting photographing explaining in terms of modern times mm. but they're very similar to things that have been previously described thousands of years ago well, and 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 I think you're right to highlight the leap as well, rather than these being some of them were, but some of these are not just. That's what's hit me. Some of these are not just close to, or as I said right at the start, slightly ahead of the curve of where we're at. Some of these have blown that curve right out of the water. There was, you know, the Dogon had no, you know, they had no way of you would think knowing any of the stuff that they knew it's so out there that that just blows my mind as well yeah yeah completely um and i'm sure there's going to be many other examples that you listeners will know about but those are the i think those are the standout ones i think the you know there when i was putting this together i was sorely tempted to move into the realm of the nazca lines but i don't think there's enough compelling evidence that the nazca lines is anything other than a group of people who had a religion which compelled them to draw these huge things on the landscape and whether they were just very adept at scaling up small pictures on into large images or as some people have suggested that they had created some kind of rudimentary air balloon to sort of oversee these things from above so they could see what they actually looked like i don't think there is not enough evidence to say that they had a culture which referenced extraterrestrial beings and there's absolutely nothing in their culture in the in the reporting that I have read at least and I have read quite a lot about this over the last 20 years there is nothing to suggest that these things are UFO landing pads or anything like that they are very similar to like the Easter Island heads or the white horses that you see across uh Great Britain they there's something that was put there for cultural reasons and you know perhaps for joy or whatever but they early, weren't early put, banksy yeah yeah <laughs> but they weren't there for that yeah. but passing down specific mathematical information about an unseen star is a different kettle of fish if yeah different kettle of alien fish that that just blows my mind blows my mind and the tablet as well, that, that's incredible as well, that mm. you've got, like we said, just created for that purpose. Um, and it involves beer, which is good. Um, fascinating, really, really fascinating. I, I didn't really know anything about the Dogon tribe. I've just done a little Google of some of the images. There's loads of cave paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, I guess, kind of amazing artwork that they produced. I yeah. love the face masks as well. We'll put some pictures of uh, of the Dogon up there as well because they do look incredible. Um, 
Mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing, that. It's it, it's one of those things where it's just... And you're right, it's that it's that... It's so out of place for the time that just just the idea of being able to witness what the hell they were looking at would be incredible to see wouldn't it because it must have been so even if there was a rational you know some of the 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 accounts of battles in the sky even if they were meteors or weather phenomenon that they couldn't quite understand to them it must have just been incredible and if if it was some kind of extraterrestrial presence that just I mean, incomprehensible for them, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think we we need to, and one of the reasons for highlighting this is just being careful that we don't infantilize those people of that mm. time. Like, like you and I, we've we've had no special training in the sky, but we know the difference between a cloud formation and something really unusual. And I think if we saw a meteorite, although even if we hadn't been told it would be it was a meteorite, we might be able to just say, oh, yeah, there was this peculiar thing. But these really um, voluptuous explanations and descriptions of these things mean that it feels like it was something other. Mm. I, well, it's reminded me. What do you know? The uh, Elon Musk thing in the sky, the the those kind of combinations that go round. I don't know what they call that system um, that he's got up there. It's the you know what I'm talking Starlink. about. Starlink. Starlink. I remember I was not that long ago. I was looking out and I saw that, and my initial reaction was one of, "Oh my god, what the heck is that?" Because I'd never seen it before. I guess the advantage we've got now is my my brain then kicks in and goes, that's got to be something logical. It's not the space station because I've seen that going round. It's not meteors because of the way they're travelling. It's not shooting stars because look at the formation. But, yeah, I guess we've got the advantage of online where I could just look it up and go, oh, it's the Elon Musk thing. Of course it is. Mm. But um, so I guess there is that side of it that, you know, if you do see something back in those days, small groups, word of mouth. But I think your point about not infantilizing or underestimating the intelligence, it's like the thing about, you know, everyone thought the world was flat. That's not exactly the case, right? No, no. <laughs> you know. That's there's there's often a misconception that everyone oh god yeah no we're going to fall off the end of the world that wasn't the common belief you know what I mean so no yeah I I think that's a very good point you make excellent so really good Um, I think I think maybe this just gives us um, now (laughs) now we've sort of made the point when we go on in future to talk about. you know ufo sightings and peculiar ghost sightings and stuff maybe we can you know as a as a collective listeners and us we can think about like perhaps it isn't simply a funk our interpretation simply isn't a function of our of our time in history it perhaps that perhaps is a lazy way of looking at it and perhaps we need to think further about why we're we're seeing those things but i still say i still really do believe that all these things are connected i don't know how and i don't know why but i i do think that trying to compartmentalize um spirits and aliens and cryptids i still really think they belong in the same camp Yeah, and, and, and I'm going to continue looking for yeah fairies absolutely, and I'm going to continue looking for evidence which might draw that together. Although, like we always say, if there's evidence that they're not, I'm very open to that. But yep. I just think that that is that to me makes the most sense. Yep. Otherwise, <laughs> there's way too much weird stuff going, going on, on for me yeah. to handle. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm with you. I feel like I'm going to have to read an ancient tablet and lie down. <laughs> do, do you have a iPad one? <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> well, that was fantastic. Really thought-provoking. I, I, I'm sure you're right. We'll return to this topic again, and 
Um, we'd certainly love to know what you think out there if you want to share with us um, at TQM Podcast on Twitter and on Facebook. And uh, and thank all those who are continuing to leave us fantastic uh, reviews. And if anyone else out there has uh, has the time and inclination, it really helps us. So if you do get a chance, wherever you get your podcasts, if you can write a review or give us some stars, that would be brilliant as well. It would, it would. And if you've got a friend who you think would enjoy it, please don't just tell them about it. I mean, do tell them about it, but help them download it on their phone because... Mm. Um, you know what the pod- podcast world is like. I think there's 1.3 million podcasts currently published. And so it's very hard to stand out. But if you enjoy it and you've got a friend who you think would enjoy it, help them download it, help them subscribe. It would help us enormously. Thank you. Brilliant. Okay. Well, look, we will uh, we'll be back next week with a, another great episode. Uh, and we'll see you then. <laughs> Take care. Bye. the quantum mechanics.